Thank you, Rich, so much. Good morning to everyone. He's, he's risen. He is risen. We want to take a few moments uh, this morning to focus our, our thoughts uh, on our Lord Jesus Christ and what He has done for us. And when we think of remembrance, I think of a verse from Isaiah, chapter 46, verses 9 to 10. And it says, Remember the former things long past. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from the ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Easter is a time that we remember what the Lord has done for us. God is the one that declares the end from the beginning, and all of his purposes are going to be fulfilled and are fulfilled. There's no one like him. We need to remember what God has spoken to us from his word. And to do that, we're going to go back to the book of Genesis. We'll go back about 6,000 years to the creation of the heavens and the earth. And in the very beginning, God created man and woman. In Genesis 1.31, it says, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. God is the initiator. He's the one that loves us, that created us. We talked about that last week, about God's love. God is the one who initiated it. He created us. And he created man in his own image. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 to 17, the Lord God commanded the man, after creating him, saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of knowledge and good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So God initiated the creation. What's man's response? Well, man's response is rebellion. In Genesis 3, we have Adam and Eve being tempted by Satan, and ultimately they give in to that temptation and eat of the fruit of the tree, plunging mankind into the curse of sin. In Genesis 3, 7, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings because shame had come into the picture. And God talks to the serpent in chapter 3, and he says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And this he... In verse 15, that is spoken of here, that bruises Satan on the head, he's the promised one that would come to bring resolution to the sin problem. Right at the very beginning, God has that plan. Because of sin, it brings about death. We see people begin to die. Violence fills the earth. Relationships are strained. Anger, sexual perversion, drunkenness, idolatry. Jealousy all become a part of the human inclination because of sin. Man was now separated from God. God's holy and he's just. And he takes sin seriously. But mankind 
minimizes sin. That personal, intimate fellowship that man had with God at the beginning is now lost. And we ask the question, how do we resolve this issue? Well, God initiated creation, man rebelled, and now we see God's redemption plan. And we know as a theme that runs through the Old Testament, we know that Yahweh is a saving God. He's a loving God. And when you compared Yahweh to the pagan gods that were around Israel at the time, for instance, the Canaanite Baals, they had no interest in saving anyone. They could be appealed to for favors by sacrifices, but you would never imagine those deities who were an offended deity at that time taking the initiative to provide salvation or forgiveness to anyone because they're false gods. But even in their uh, definition of how they looked at their gods, they were not saving gods. Think about Elijah's encounter with the priests of Baal. He was by himself against 450 priests of Baal, and they tried everything to get their god to act, and nothing worked. And I think the best that could be said about that god, Baal, is that he was indifferent. And that's exactly what Elijah's mockery of Baal demonstrated. The pagan gods go from indifference all the way to hostility. And yet, when you look through all those gods, supposed gods, there's not one that's a savior like Yahweh. Yahweh is compassionate, merciful, tender-hearted, filled with loving kindness, and eager to save people. The Psalms give evidence of this compassionate God, this merciful God. In Psalm 145, 8-9, it says, The Lord is gracious and merciful slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and His mercies are over all His works. Psalm 86, 5 says, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive, and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. When we talk about God's mercy, we have to talk about His faithfulness and His immutability. Because if God is forever faithful, He has to ever live. He lives forever. And the one constant true theme that reoccurs is God is a savior of his people. That's why we should not be surprised that God redeems people instead of instantaneously destroying them when they sin. There are instances where God did destroy people because of their sin, sin. but there are many times God has patience. He wants all to come to repentance. And Malachi 3.6 says, "'For I, the Lord, do not change.'" Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. God doesn't change. Even though he has patience, uh, his will never changes. God hates sin, but it does not cause him to change his word or change his will, back out of his promises or change his mind. The reason, as Numbers twenty-three nineteen puts it, is God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Because of God's character, God gave us something else. He gave us his law in the Old Testament. And there were requirements there and shadows of things that would come. We go from shadows to substance. Only believers, when it came to the Old Testament sacrifices, there's some principles that come out of that are very interesting. Only believers should offer sacrifices. They needed to have the right behavior and the right teaching in order to do the sacrifices. 
the sacrifices were an outward demonstration of a vital faith that was internal. Sacrifices uh, did not save from sin, did not forgive sins uh, in and of themselves. It was what was in the heart. Animal sacrifices are insufficient to fully and finally atone for the sins of human beings. Only a human life can fully atone for a human life. In Psalm 49, 5-9, we see that. Sacrifices did not eliminate temporary punishment for sin, especially willful, defiant sin. Sacrifices declare, emphasize, and magnify sin and its consequences. The sacrifices demonstrate that the Mosaic law, the Mosaic legislation, offers the Old Testament believer no independent access to God. And the reason for that is that the Old Testament sacrifices were corporate sacrifices in public uh, together, but they had no independent access to God. The Old Testament believer identifies himself outwardly with the covenant God and his covenant people. And that outward demonstration ought to be the result of true faith. But when that initiating faith is absent, the sacrifice is worthless. It's an empty gesture before God. God hates false sacrifice and cannot accept it as true worship. These sacrifices pointed to a future perfect sacrifice that would be needed. Uh, What we saw in Genesis chapter 3, the one that would come, that would crush the head of Satan. And as we take this into consideration this morning, I want you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. And God's plan culminates in the promised one, the Messiah, the perfect sacrifice that would come. And in Isaiah 53, I want to look at verses 4 to 7. And in verse 4, speaking of the suffering servant, the promised one that would come 700 years before Jesus would come on the scene. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. And then in verse 10 to 12, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, picturing those Old Testament sacrifices, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one My servant will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. 
yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. And then if you would turn to Psalm 22, Psalm 22, just want to look at a few verses here that point to the promised one, the Messiah that would come. And in Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2, it says familiar words that we heard from our Lord on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, and I have no rest. And then in verses 12 to 18, just giving us a quick picture of what Christ experienced on the cross. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Just amazing prophecy that David wrote well in advance of Christ. So the nature and reasons for sacrifice that we talked about earlier helped prepare Israel for the necessity of the Messiah's substitutionary sacrifice for sin. What was the problem Israel had when they saw Jesus on the cross, when he gave his life? Well, they saw him as a weak man because they had the idea that if you're on the cross or you suffered, it's because of something that you have done. It's a a problem that you've brought upon yourself. They see his crucifixion as his problem. He was smitten of God, as Isaiah 53.10 says. But here's the key part. Not for his sin, but that he might accomplish atonement in his death. The Messiah is obedient to his Father. As we see in Isaiah 50, if we were to spend some time there, you would see how the Son is obedient to his Father. He's not a victim of his actions, but he's obedient to Yahweh. So we see all of these details that were predicted well in advance. God is the initiator, as we said in the beginning. God loves. It's God who saves. God reconciles man. Reconciliation originates with God. The Messiah, the one to come, was atoning for, defeating, and overcoming sin so that we could be reconciled to God. Isaiah 53, 5 which we read earlier, puts it this way, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. When we look at the Day of Atonement, uh, which anticipated the Messiah's propitiatory sacrifice by his blood, the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross satisfies the wrath of God. It satisfies God's holiness once and for all. All of those shadows through the Old Testament sacrifices and what God was doing, moved towards Jesus Christ. The servant of Yahweh voluntarily bore the iniquities of many. 
His sacrificial death did not occur because he was forced into it. He voluntarily did it. He decided, accepted, and submitted to his father. Yahweh's suffering servant was a perfect substitutionary sacrifice. Number one, he identified with condemned sinners, as we saw in Isaiah 53.8. Number two, he was blameless without any stain or spot to mar his sacrifice. Isaiah 53.9 talks about no deceit. And, fit, and verse 11, the righteous one. And third, he was acceptable to Yahweh. And therefore, it was the will of the Lord, because of all that, to crush him. Isaiah 53.10. And we said that from the very beginning. Yahweh is a saving God. He was the initiator. Man was the one who rebelled. And yet God loved us in spite of that and made a way a perfect sacrifice. And Jesus, was the, he is the Messiah, the anointed one that was on the cross. And I think of the song that uh, Paul Phillips sings here sometimes, Sing to Jesus. Come and see, look on this mystery, the Lord of the universe nailed to a tree. Christ our God, spilling his blood, bowing in anguish his sacred head. Sing to Jesus, Lord of our shame, Lord of our sinful hearts. He is the great Redeemer. Sing to Jesus, honor his name. Sing of his faithfulness, pouring out his life unto death. Come you weary, and he will give you rest. Come you who mourn, lay on his breast. Giver of mercy, giver of life. Now and forever, he is the king of heaven. Sing to Jesus, we are his own. Now and forever, sing for the love our God has shown. And thankfully, it doesn't end at the cross.